the wonderful world of Dark Lords. Report 1. The Pride Lands. Although my patron knows the circumstances of this project's inception, I record them here for posterity. I was recently approached by a wizard calling himself Yensid, which I believe to be a pseudonym, as I can find no records of his existence, who wished me to perform an ambitious undertaking on his behalf. A previous scholar in his employ had surveyed several prominent domains for him, but met with some misfortune or another before she could finish the task. Yensid asked me to continue her work, and with the compensation he offered, it would be foolish to say no. The material rewards were all well and good, but it was the offer of further tutelage in the magical arts that captivated my interest. I have progressed as far in my studies as I can, but I know my powers are not sufficient to protect myself from the creatures that stalk the night. Thus, armed with a lion's tooth as a mist token, I began my survey with a domain that was utterly foreign to me. A land with a vicious, petty king who seems bent on running it into the ground, while his knoll enforcers terrorize the populace, the Leonin nobility dream of their lost past, and all watch helplessly as a once-proud nation withers into nothingness. Welcome to Wonderful World of Dark Lords. I'm Tom. I'm Rachel. And we're discussing how to convert Disney movies to Ravenloft Domains of Dread because we're a couple of late Gen X, early millennial nerds, and this is the kind of thing we talk about. Along the way, we'll look at the Dark Lord, the domain itself, and some plot hooks and adaptation ideas to integrate this setting into your own campaign. Today's episode, The Lion King. So, since this is our pilot, and people don't know who we are except our friends who are listening to this, we should probably talk a little bit about our gaming history, why we're talking about Ravenloft specifically, rather than general D&D stuff. So, uh, Tom, what's kind of your background with D&D in general, and Ravenloft in particular? Well, I grew up in the late 80s and 90s, and I would always see people talking about D&D. I'd see read books where characters played D&D, or I remember very clearly seeing the ads for the AD&D books and comic books. I would get them and they'd be mm-hmm. in the back. There'd be the picture of the monster manual in the binder. And I always wanted to try it. It sounded really cool, really amazing. I was a little nerd and it was the kind of thing nerds were supposed to do. <laughs> and then I got to college and I got really the chance to try D&D. And I played a couple of like, you know, random one shots uh, with some people, some friends. But the first long-term campaign I was in that went for more than one or two sessions where I actually made a character that did multiple levels, that went through a whole arc, that went through a whole epic adventure, was a Ravenloft game that you ran. So this is a very special place in my heart, and it is different than a lot of other people's idea of Ravenloft, because for me that means it always will kind of be like the baseline. Mm -hmm. Like that's the default play experience, is this very strong, thematic, gothic, horror mystery adventure. Yeah, it's yeah, rather rather than being a fantasy setting, D&D almost is more of a, a horror setting for both of us. Because for me, I mean, Ravenloft has such an outsized place in my brain. It's not just my default D&D setting. It's my default TTRPG, period. Most gamers, we've got that first game that we ever played. We've got that first game we ever GM'd. We've got that game where we would take all the supplements and hold ourselves up in our rooms and read the supplements cover to cover for hours and memorize all this trivia and minutia, even though we had no idea if we were ever going to run a game or not. And Ravenloft is all of those for me. Um, it's p- pretty much any gaming box that it can tick off, it did. 
Um, so it's it's got an incredibly special place in my heart. I love it. There was a thing on Twitter a while back that GMs were listing systems and settings where they had run five campaigns in them. You know, I've, I've run five vampire games. I've you know I've run five Eberron games, and I was I was feeling a little lacking because I was looking at all these big long lists and thinking, well, geez, the only game that I've run five of is Ravenloft. I, I haven't run five of anything else. And then I thought about it and realized that I could actually list Ravenloft twice because I've run 10 separate Ravenloft games. <laughs> yeah, and many of them are not just one shots. They're months, if not years yes. long campaigns. <laughs> there, yeah. If, uh, there, there have been some, there have been some long ones. So I, I adore this setting. I'm primarily, uh, you know, as evidenced by the fact that I've been playing it long enough to run 10 games. I'm more of a 2E, 3.5 girl. 5E is great. I love how many people 5E's brought in. You know, the Fan Directions Guide to Ravenloft has a lot of great stuff in it, but they're just, this is, this is always the setting that's, that's carved in my heart is the, is the 2E 3.5 version. So that's, that's kind of what I'm bringing in is my Ravenloft lore and background. Whereas with Tom, I think with you, it's not so much the setting stuff. It's that I'm really much more of a player and you're much more of a GM. Yeah, I'm very much, other than Ravenloft, <laughs> the forever GM. And he will never GM Ravenloft because he's terrified to GM it for me. I, I'm, cur- I'm curious to see what he'll do with true. it. That is true. Maybe we could do kind of like a You Got Mail, play it online with a voice <laughs> modulator kind of deal. I wouldn't be that guy about it, but it's still I know. too intimidating. I know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> So when we get a new book, a new supplement, new anything, I always approach it like a GM. I always turn around and say, okay, uh, what kind of story could I get from this? What kind of campaign? What kind of plot hooks? That's the way I process gaming material. My default is how am I going to make this into a story that I run for players? Yeah, so one of one of the things that Tom always does that he's going to be doing in, in this podcast, a, a perspective that he's bringing, is sometimes you'll you'll look at a, a gaming supplement and say, okay, this setting is great. What the heck do I do with it? How do I bring the PCs in? And that's one of the things that Tom's really going to be bringing in when we're talking about these uh, these settings. We want this to not just be, hey, someone made stats for Scar, someone gave Scar some cool actions, or even someone wrote up the Pride Lands in a sort of Ravenloft style format. We would specifically want us to make this usable for GMs. You can take this setting material we're coming up with and it has reasons to involve your players and it has plot hooks and it has a lot of guidance for actually taking this and running it with your players. Good actionable steps. And the, the reason that we picked the Lion King to start with was we have kids and our youngest is three. And any of you who have three-year-olds or who have ever been around three-year-olds or spoken to anyone who has ever been around three-year-olds know that they will do that thing where they pick one thing and watch it 800 times in a row. And our youngest did that with The Lion King a while back. Uh, just every day we were watching The Lion King at least twice a day. And about the 847th time we were watching it, as I was sitting in the background planning for the Ravenloft game that I was going to be running that week... It occurred to me that Scar is a textbook Dark Lord. We're, we're going to be getting into exactly what makes him a textbook Dark Lord and what makes the Pride Lands a picture-perfect domain as this podcast goes. But Scar just 
every single thing that a Dark Lord does, he does to perfection. And that got us thinking about what are some other Disney movies we might be able to adapt. When with those, they might not necessarily fit as well as Scar does. They're going to be a little bit more experimental, a little bit stranger, but for this, Scar is basically Strahd von Zarovic with a mane. This is going to be very, very easy to Dark Lord. And the reason, it's not just, hey, here's a nerdy thing we like, and here's another nerdy thing we like, though that's a big part of it. But Disney movies what makes them good to adapt for D&D, what makes them good especially to adapt for Ravenloft, is that a lot of times, A, they are a very strong thematic adventure setting with a strong flavor and a strong theme, and that's what you want with a Ravenloft domain. You want the Frankenstein domain. You want the, you know, uh, Voodoo New Orleans domain. You want Evil Lich King doing Dark Magic domain. That almost sort of horror theme park... Disneyland setting mm-hmm. and can't have Disneyland without Disney and the movies <laughs> are like that as well. And the other thing is a lot of times the strongest character and the character that a lot of the story and a lot of the theme and a lot of the atmosphere of the settings built around is the villain. Yeah, with, uh, with, with Sleeping Beauty, we're, we're watching Sleeping Beauty for Maleficent, right? Or, or I love Princess and the Frog. I love everything about Princess and the Frog, but I love Dr. Facilier most of all. It's the, the villains really... In a lot of cases, they carry these movies. Not all. But that's why some of them were not going to be Dark Lording, because who even is the villain of Lilo and Stitch? But in a lot of cases. Stitch. Stitch. Um, <laughs> and that addresses one of the issues with Ravenloft, which is a criticism leveled of it that I think is very fair, and it's kind of a necessary evil of the setting, and especially building a world off of the foundation stone of Castle Ravenloft which is built around the foundation zone of Strahd, is that the villains are so, the Dark Lords are kind of the main characters of the setting. And with Disney movies, since the villains are kind of the most, most likable, most memorable, most important character of the movie, hey, perfect Ravenloft. <laughs> but the great thing is we've also got the heroes there to show what the PCs should be doing. But speaking of those villains and how wonderful they are and how central they are, there are some villains who make excellent Dark Lords. There are other villains who don't. So let's talk about why Scar is a picture-perfect Dark Lord in our Dark Lord segment. The Lord. The king of the Pride Lands, Scar, is an unusually scrawny specimen of a Leonin who inherited the throne after the untimely deaths of his brother and nephew. His reign has been a series of controversies and outright missteps, from his mismanagement of the Pride Lands' once abundant natural resources to his shocking alliance with the bordering tribe of Knoll Scavengers. He has dedicated his attention to expanding the palace and indulging in entertainment, claiming that these ostentatious displays of wealth prove that the kingdom has entered a golden age. The people of the Pride Lands have a fanatical devotion to the ideal of the monarchy, and none will ever challenge Scar so long as they view his claim as legitimate. Furthermore, Scar seems to have almost supernatural powers of cunning and persuasion, and many who intended to challenge him in the past left his presence shaken, demoralized, and reluctantly supportive of his reign. Our Dark Lord of the Pride Lands is Scar. Like many of the Dark Lords in Ravenloft, he is the sovereign of the domain. He's not just this sort of metaphysical, spiritual, supernatural ruler, but like something like Strahd or classically Aslan, he is the political ruler as well. 
There are some domains where there's kind of a question of who the Dark Lord is going to be. Pride Lands, there is really absolutely no question. <laughs> As we're going to go into in a minute, he fits so perfectly. And in ad- adapting Lion King to making it a Ravenloft setting, this is one of those, it's so perfect, we don't even need to change anything about the setting or about the story. In some of the domains, we're going to have to say, do other alternatives. Maybe something like change the backstory, have the villain win, advance the timeline, hero got defeated. This is all happening. It's a setting your characters go to during The Lion King, between verse 1 and verse 2 of Hakuna Matata. (laughs) But I've been saying he's the Dark Lord, me saying Dark Lord this, Dark Lord that, but let's just back it up a minute and make sure we're all on the same page. Rachel, what is a Dark Lord? Well... A Dark Lord is an evil being that's been cursed by the Dark Powers, the powers that run Ravenloft. They're evil, they're irredeemable, and whatever they do, it's something that draws the attention of the Dark Powers and causes them to create this domain, this land, that's a reflection of the Dark Lord and is really just a hell of their own creation. It's hell for everyone inside there. No one wants to be a citizen of Barovia. But even more than that, it is the personal hell of whatever Dark Lord is ruling it. Like we were saying in the intro, there's kind of this this stereotype that the Dark Lords are the main characters. There's also this stereotype that the Dark Lords get everything that they want, that the villains win in Ravenloft, right? But the Dark Lords are actually suffering as much as, if not more than, the citizens because they really are trapped in their own private hellscape. And that's what the domains are. With the Dark Lords, there are four qualities that make for a really good, really memorable Dark Lord that we were kind of settling on as we were discussing this. And before we talk about Scar and how well he matches these qualities, we're going to do a quick rundown of them with the Dark Lord that you're all probably most familiar with, which is Strahd. It's, Strahd was the first Dark Lord before there were Dark Lords. Mm-hmm. You had the original Castle Ravenloft adventure, which was not this whole domain of dread, demi-plane, pocket dimension thing. It was just a spooky place you go to with spooky mist. And that was so popular, went over so well. There was such a market for horror that uh, TSR took that and built the the wider setting of Ravenloft. And you had kind of a similar thing with 5e, where you had Curse of Strahd, then the whole rest of Ravenloft built out from that. Mm-hmm. So he really is the model, the template. Barovia and Strahd are the mold that everything else is shaped in. So if we can show these Disney characters, these Disney stories, ideas are also in that mold, then I think they are inarguably excellent Ravenloft domains. <laughs> And we're not going to be talking about Strahd every episode. We just want to make sure that we're all on the same page with what the qualities of a good Dark Lord are, because these are the criteria that we're going to be using for every single Dark Lord from here on out. So for starters, I mentioned all Dark Lords are evil, they're unforgivable, horrible people, but there's some act of ultimate darkness that they do. That's the, the, the phrasing that they use back in the 2E 3.5 days. There's an act of ultimate darkness that they did that just completely sealed their doom was the thing that kicked everything off. So in Strahd's case, it was murdering his brother because he wanted to marry Tatiana. This act of ultimate darkness is something that plays an important narrative role because Mm -hmm. every Dark Lord starts out outside of Ravenloft. Mm -hmm. Nobody's born in Ravenloft. No Dark Lord's born into their domain. So you need, like, what's the line? What is the moment that they were brought into Ravenloft and it became a domain? Yeah. And even there are some that were born in Ravenloft. I, I hate to well actually you, but <laughs> I, I knew she was going to do this. 
there there are some that were born in Ravenloft, but no one is born a Dark Lord. So in the original lore, Ivana Barizzi was born in Borka, and her, her mother was the original Dark Lord. But Ivana wasn't. Ivana had to murder her mom in order to become the Dark Lord. That was her, that was her act of ultimate darkness. So that's the thing that makes the Dark Power sit up and take notice and say, well, hello, new friend. The second thing, the second element of a Dark Lord is in honor of Dr. Facilier, we are calling this, they got what they wanted, they lost what they had. They have some way in which it seems like they got everything they wanted. They are ascendant, their moment of ultimate triumph, because they didn't commit an act of ultimate darkness for no reason, right? It was because they wanted to get something. And in a way, they do get it. But they get this horrible, evil genie, funhouse mirror version of it that's not what they actually wanted. So Strahd, he killed Sergei, Sergei's gone. There is no obstacle in the way of him and Tijana now, theoretically. He's the absolute unquestioned Lord of Barovia. He has eternal youth. That was, that was one of the things that he was insecure about, right? Was that Tijana wasn't into him because he was old. But Sergei's gone, but he's never going to have Tijana. He has eternal youth, but he cannot use it to get Tijana. She's always going to come back. She's always going to be coming back into his life, reminding him of what he can't have. And he's never going to get her. So he has everything that he wants, except the thing that's the most important to him. The third thing that I think is really a dividing line between the okay Dark Lords and the great ones is that they have some kind of element of tragedy and relatability. They're not just evil for evil's sake. There's something about them that we kind of go, you're the worst person in the world, but that sucks. Strahd is a repulsive incel, but it sucks to be friends. It's it sucks to be into somebody who's not into you. Yeah, if you fall in love with someone and they don't love you back, that hurts. And on the curse of Strahd, like the Reddit and the Facebook group, a good time number of times people will say, like, my players decide as draws the hero, my straight players mm-hmm. decide as draws the good guy. And more than anything, it's because I think of that universal sympathy of you were in love with someone and they didn't love you back. Yeah. And then our fourth element of a good Dark Lord is that the domain, it reflects their personality and their curse. The domains, they're perfectly tailored hells for these Dark Lords, right? They, they reflect the Dark Lord's personality. They reflect the Dark Lord's curse. It's getting into that gothic background, right? Where Castle Dracula is the, the spooky gothic Dracula castle. You look at that and you say, by Jove, that is a vampire's castle. It's sort of the externalization mm-hmm. of his internal self or... Something like in Phantom of the Opera, in, in the musical, that at least, which I haven't read the book. Um, <laughs> Don't. The musical, which is my only point of context here. There is no reason to read the book. Just just keep it that way. <laughs> that this layer isn't just, it's, it's, it's a storage room everyone forgot about in the basement. <laughs> and he really spookied it up. It's a sense of you're going into his mind. You're going into his, the external expression of his internal reality. Mm-hmm. And Barovia has got that external expression of Strahd's internal reality. It's vampire land. It's dark. It's gothic. There are wolves and bats and mists. There are frightened peasants who are, you know, they're, 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 they're never going to, to rise up and question Strahd and rebel against him. And one of the elements, again, with the you got what you wanted, you lost what you had, that kind of reflects his curse, and a thing that they emphasize in 5e that I really like, is that, okay, congratulations, you killed your brother, you killed one of the only people who is your peer and your equal and your confidant, now you've got all these peasants that you're completely bored with, and you are bored out of your mind and lonely. So having this dark 
spooky gothic domain full of of various Brovian peasantry. It's not just a cool horror fantasy land. It's also a reflection of Strahd's personality and curves. So, Tom, I've been going on about Strahd, as I want to do. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why Scar makes a perfect Dark Lord and why he has these four elements? Why he is, in fact, Strahd in a big wig and running around (laughs) on all fours. He even kills his brother! He even kills his brother! (laughs) Right there! It's all coming together! So first off, as Rachel indicated, he has an obvious immediate act of ultimate darkness where he brutally murders his brother, psychologically tortures his nephew, and then tries to have him killed. I just, I just have to interject real quick that, that every time we watch it, that is a part that I cannot believe that he could have killed Simba right there as he was standing over Mufasa's body. But instead, he has to tell him about how this is all his fault. Like, why? Why did you do that? (laughs) There is no reason for this. You monster. Just (laughs) wants to make this kid cry before he murders him. (laughs) And that even is this act that brings him to sovereignty and gives him power over the Pride Lands So it really maps well to this idea of sort of an act of ultimate darkness that then brings the Pride Lands into Ravenloft. And in terms of you got what you wanted and you lost what you had, he does that. He is not happy and he is not a good king. And this is, I think, the sort of genius tragedy of Scar Mm -hmm. is he believes, you know from the beginning of the movie, he, he truly believes he'll be a better king than Mufasa. And then he's smarter than Mufasa and he's cannier than Mufasa and he's going to be a better king than Mufasa. And it's only this like bad luck of the genetic draw that he's not king. And it's just, just he's been treated unjustly by life. He's been ill served by life, by fate. And so he's not king, which he deserves to be. And it's not just that he wants to rule for the sake of ruling. You get that in his mind it's going to be sort of for the benefit. The kingdom is going to benefit from his rule. And then he does get power and he runs the kingdom into the ground. Mm -hmm. And it is crystal clear, undeniable to everyone, just not even just in terms of political structure, but the drought, the famine, it is crystal clear that he is a worse king than Mufasa. If he were half the king Mufasa was, then... He's ten times the king Mufasa was! And I can such he's so prickly about it. Or he, he is. He won't let anyone say Mufasa. <laughs> he made the law that people can't even say Mufasa. He's so insecure about this. And so you get that not only is it clear to everyone else that he's a much worse king than Mufasa, not even ethically, just in terms of, of being a practical ruler, mm-hmm. but that he knows too. Like on some level, he knows he is a worse king than Mufasa, but he will never admit that, even to himself. And he will ruin the kingdom. He will let everyone starve. He will burn the whole thing down before he admits that he's not a good king. Mm-hmm. And that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a reason why this movie was the genesis of this whole project. <laughs> he, he got what he wanted and he's miserable and he's in hell. And it is a hell of his entirely of his own creation, but it is a hell that he is in every day, and he is more miserable than he was before he was king. And that's, mwah, <laughs> probably guess what I did there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's a dark lord. That's a good dark mm-hmm. lord. And in terms of the element of tragedy and relatability, that also is there. That you have that a little less so because he's so mean, but 
everyone can have that that wince of sympathy of everyone around you likes your brother better than you. Or there's there's that when he's saying, oh, as far as brains are concerned, I got the lion's share. But when it comes to brute strength, he he thinks Mufasa is this dumb popular jock. Yeah, right. That, that this is clearly the image he's built in his head that he's the smart one who actually deserves all the credit, and his brother is just this dumb handsome jock that everyone that like got handed everything on a plate, mm-hmm. and everyone can imagine having a sibling that if. I hope you don't, but everyone can imagine having a sibling that everybody likes better than them. You know, you kind of, in Babysitter's Club, Claudia always had that sort of, my parents really like my older sister better than me because she's conservative and just gets great grades and just isn't weird and they get her. And like, yeah, that that sucks. Like, that's that's a bad feeling. And it doesn't matter that you're you know, doing lot your lion Hitler doing lion triumph of the will. That just <laughs> that base setup is that's rough, buddy. And even with Scar and Mufasa, it's not like with say Prince John. With Prince John you really hear about how, you know, mommy always liked King Richard better and everything. But with Scar and Mufasa, there's even kind of the abstraction that yeah, they're brothers, but since we don't hear about the the relationship growing up and everything, you could really map this onto almost any relationship that you feel insecure about where you think that there's some you know, you, you could say that this is your relationship with your boss. That you think that your boss is just this like total slacker idiot but they're popular and they're handsome and if you were running the company you would know exactly what to do and also with the whole just like Strahd, with the you got what you wanted you lost what you had once again i think it's a pretty universal experience yeah. we've all been there of you have convinced yourself of something that if you do something certain things will happen things will go better things will be better and they don't and you that that's that kind of willful self-delusion there is just, we've all been there. You made a mistake, but you're not going to, you you don't want to admit to yourself on a conscious level, you made a mistake. And it's, it's very relatable. Yeah. Finally, in terms of the domain as a reflection of the personality, the curse as an external expression of the interior reality, this is something Disney's really doing. This is baby's first metaphor. This is <laughs> Scar is ruining the land politically, ethically, and so the land is ruined ecologically. That the Pride Lands mm-hmm. under Mufasa's rule, it was lush, it was green, it was in peace, it was in harmony, and under Scar's rule, it is just this dying wasteland. And so, yeah, once again, that is this perfect, gothic, Barovia-esque reflection of like everything that's just built around the Dark Lord and everything radiates out of the Dark Lord and the Dark Lord sets the pattern that everything else follows. Yeah, it's it is it's absolutely so good. it's it's so good, my gosh. <laughs> One of the problems that we were kind of having with adapting it was you know, okay, what do you what do we do with the fact that Scar's a lion? And they're all animals. And, yeah, how how are you gonna have your PCs go talk to a lion and some hyenas. As you may have picked up on the uh, allusion to Leonins earlier in the in the podcast, the, Tom actually had the brilliant breakthrough. Yes, there's a bunch of things you can do with this. This isn't a thing we're going to have to deal with every episode because most Disney movies are about people. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much the Pixar movies. That'll be a whole other bridge to cross. But we'll talk about other possible versions of it. But the one is sort of that we're doing is the 
the kind of main timeline, the one we're doing for all of our fiction. Or kind of the kind of default idea that we have for this. Is this the various animal people that have that come out for Dungeons and Dragons for 5e? So the lions being Leonin, you have the, the Loxodon, the elephant people, the gif for the hippo people, uh, the Akakra for Zazu. You've just got a a really a wide variety of animal-themed mm-hmm. people. And and some of them, even if they aren't exact matches, you could kind of reskin, just just basically change the flavor text. So Timon could be a Herongon very easily. Yeah. And so that that still captures that kind of primal animal kingdom sense of the Pride Lands with like the political structure, the social structure, but it makes it a bit more of a setting that your average 5e Ravenloft adventuring party could interact with. They don't have to like squat to talk to make eye contact with everyone. (laughs) And we'll talk more about that a little later. Some of the specific adaptations we did for the Lion King, some of the ways we tried to adapt into a little bit more of like a kingdom and less just a food web ecology. But that's a discussion for the domain section rather than for the Dark Lord section. We just wanted to throw that out here right now so we're talking about gnolls in a minute that it's, uh, it's clear where we're coming from. That's kind of the background, the reason that he maps really well as a Dark Lord. But another thing that we wanted to talk about when we were planning them out was all the Dark Lords have their special gifts, right? They've got, you know, when, when you read through Ben Richardson's Guide to Ravenloft or the old, older material, they've all got their special powers in the, you know, Straw's powers in Dominion or whoever's powers in Dominion sections. So we wanted to talk about what are some of the, the powers that Scar demonstrates, because you know, he's he's not one of the ones who's more obvious. He doesn't turn into a dragon, right? He doesn't put on King Triton's crown and become a giant and rise up and start stirring up whirlpools. He was just trying to, I'm, I'm making big stirring motions. She is, and... <laughs> Tragically, no, he doesn't. So we were talking about some of the aspects of Scar that would map themselves over to powers and what were some of the powers we wanted to include. So let's talk about that. What are some of the things that Scar brings to the table that we could sort of translate into supernatural gifts? Yeah, a lot of this is taking the very natural things he have and just making them a magic spell in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so obviously charisma. Mm-hmm. He's very manipulative, but he's also very charismatic. You have Be Prepared as his great villain number. It is all about him sort of convincing the hyenas to help him. He convinces Simba to be stupid, though it's not <laughs> extreme challenge. He convinces everyone to follow him. I mean, even, even in the beginning, he convinces Mufasa he's not a threat, right? It, he comes right out and says, Mufasa, don't turn your back on me. And yet somehow Mufasa still lets Simba go and visit him as a baby. Like, yeah, or, or when he comes and tells Mufasa, Wildebeest, Simba's in there. Like Mufasa, they just, they run out and Mufasa's like, Scar's my wingman. We, <laughs> all me evidence. And, me, and my, me and my bro are going to save the day. And that suggests some kind of like mind or compulsion power. Um, obviously, like in D and D terms, a high charisma score, but also something more supernatural. And one thing, he he can get into people's heads, he can mess with people, but other than Simba, nobody really likes him. So it's we're, we're probably looking at more of a suggestion than a charm because people aren't people aren't talking about what a great guy Scar is and how he's everyone's best friend. Yeah. Suggestions are a very easy spell to to give him to make this power suggestion it's got limitations you can't suggest someone hurt themselves or do something very strong against their interest you're not professor x you can't just like go in and manipulate their brain and make them you know do whatever you want you have to suggestions like a a supernaturally powered very persuasive argument Mm -hmm. but it's not mind control and that does really seem to fit scar 
So one of the powers we're giving him in the write-up is that he can, as Dark Lord, he can cast Suggestion basically at will, and that in Suggestion normally you make a will save to deny it, and that if you are subject of the Pride Lands, you make the will save at disadvantage. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you can, like, Nunal is a good example, you can defy him, but it's really hard for his subjects to defy him. And speaking of his subjects, another thing that really stood out to us was that no one even thinks about rebelling, right? I mean, we've got you know, Sarabi keeps following him, Zazu keeps following him. Nala, she runs off to get help, but she's not trying to lead a rebellion. And what does get help even mean? Is it that she's looking for a place that everyone can run away so that they can not be subject to Scar anymore? It's all stuff that would be really be acceptable to the most lawful person who ever lawful the lawful. So this really said to us that maybe there was some kind of supernatural compulsion going on, maybe some kind of geese. Am I saying that right? I, I know. <laughs> it's some kind of geese or something. We're committed. Yes. Geese. <laughs> some kind of geese that is forcing them to accept Scar as king, that as long as they truly believe that Scar is the king, then they're supernaturally compelled to support his rule and, and not to rebel against him. And this, I mean, we're going to go into more of this in the domain, but this also connects to his relationship with the hyenas, which we're doing mm -hmm. as gnolls. Obviously, there isn't that same level of compulsion. They are, they push back more. He needs to cajole them. He needs to win their favor, which I'm getting ahead of myself. But that's another area where we can take something he does in the movie that's a basic political relationship and make it more of a supernatural thing. That he he gets information, he has this kind of connection with them, and we can make that a a psychic connection very easily. Mm -hmm. Especially, we're going to be going into this sense that with some of the Noel slash hyenas, he has got this supernatural, familiar wizard, familiar like relationship with them. So that is a power that he has, but that's something we'll be going into more detail when we're talking about the whole political setup in the domain section. Mm -hmm. So those are those are the powers that we came up with for him, right? That he's got suggestion he can cast pretty much at will. He's got this geese that either it causes physical pain to people if they try to rebel against him, or they have to make one heck of a will save. So your PCs can still go in and try to get them to rebel, but they're going to be fighting a real uphill battle. And then he has this sort of psychic connection with the hyenas to really play into that. They're his, his eyes and ears and claws. And then the last power that every Dark Lord has is closing the borders. This is a plot device. Um, it is <laughs> something that comes from the idea of these individual adventures and these individual domains, and it's the whole, why don't you just leave? If Barovia is spooky vampire land, go somewhere else. <laughs> Anywhere else! Well, you can't. Uh, the Dark Lords have that power, and it is a good reflection of their dominion over their domain, their, their, contr their centralized control and their psychic connection with the domain. Once again, Strahd... He's the ancient, he's the land, and this is kind of the most obvious, visible, clear way he is the land, that he can lock the land, stop anyone from getting in or out. And with Scar, we figure that, you know, mist doesn't, there, there are some misty parts, but... Especially in the beginning, where they're kind of jumping through the mist and circle of life, but you need water for mist, and the, the pride the, lines are the, really dried up and desiccated. Especially so. in the end, Scar's rule. So we're imagining the mists of Ravenloft in the Pride Lands is a kind of mirage heat shimmer. That when you're coming into the Pride Lands, it starts as mist, but then it gets like hotter and hotter, and eventually you realize you're walking in this desert that borders the Pride Lands that has this powerful heat shimmer. 
and eventually it gets so hot that you just cannot walk any further, and you pass out, and then if you're very lucky, Timon and Pumbaa come and rescue you. Exactly. Uh, and this does, in terms of Simba escaping, that makes sense in the fiction, as Scar has just become the Dark Lord, he's still getting a handle on his powers, and he, so he was kind of in the process of closing the borders, but Simba was able to squeeze his way through. Mm-hmm. The other thing that every Dark Lord has is their torment, which I think we talked about pretty well for Scar with mm-hmm. the uh, got what you wanted lost that they have. There's not a whole lot else to add there. He's got his curse that he he knows deep down that he is not, in fact, ten times the King Mufasa was. He is, he is not even half the King Mufasa was. And he's always going to know it. He's always going to know that he's inferior and that now that he has everything he wants, there is no one left for him to blame except himself. And he's also in some ways trying to keep these plates spinning in the, in the air, right? Because he's trying to keep the hyenas happy and still enjoy what he thinks are his rightful fruits of his kingship, which there aren't any because all the food and water is gone. <laughs> right, like even his royal table is getting scantier. And mm-hmm. he can't, like he can only pretend not to notice for so many years. So I think that's, again, that's something that we covered pretty thoroughly and got what you wanted, lost as you had. I don't think that that's a thing that we need to go into in more detail here. So why don't we talk a little bit more about the domain of the Pride Lands itself and get into our section on the domain. The Land The Loxodon, Gif, Herangon, and other citizens that I spoke to all swore to me that the Pride Lands had once been a paradise, teeming with wildlife, lushly blanketed with grass, and flowing with fresh water. I could see no sign of this former glory in my visit, however. Scar's heedless exploitation of the land for his own advancement has left it as dry and barren as Pride Rock itself, and many of its people spend the entire day searching unsuccessfully for food. The lot of the Knolls is perhaps the best of all those who dwell in the domain, although this is saying little. Due to their privileged status as Scar's enforcers and spies, the king prioritizes them in the distribution of rations, ensuring that while they may be hungry, few of them will starve to death, a fate that is all too common in the Pride Lands. Rumors persist, however, that even they go without more often than not, and that they have turned to unthinkable methods to sate their hunger. Despite all this, Scar's unnatural powers of persuasion allow him to keep the population in hand, save for one group of restive Leonin women who chafe at his reign. Although their leader, Nala, has yet to defy him openly, she is becoming a rallying point for those who secretly wish to overthrow him, and it seems like a matter of time before she either challenges him or faces exile or execution. As we said in the previous section about the Dark Lord, part of this is adapting it into the Pride Lands, which is this ecosystem entirely of animals, into a more adventurer, humanoid, everybody walking around on two legs <laughs> kind of setting. So we have the idea of the various animal groups as various animal people races. And another possibility uh, for adaptation is instead of just being this wild land with a cave for the lions, this is a place where you do have settlements. You have towns, you have villages. Pride Rock isn't just a natural throne formation. It is a castle. It is a palace. It is a permanent structure mm-hmm. with a complex around it. You've got a couple of other places that are permanent villages, permanent towns, uh, or if you wanted to be a little more wild, then they could be mostly nomadic people. 
walls. Mm -hmm. But either way, there's a roof for your PCs to sleep under. There's an (laughs) inn, there's a tavern, whether it's a permanent tavern or whether it's a large tent that they can get ale and hear rumors about local doings. There are settlements. And this is also a way of bringing the themes of the ecological destruction and the kind of short-sightedness that we see in Lion King. It's specifically this issue of overhunting, mm-hmm. that he's not respecting. Anyway, you have to make this very simple for kids to understand and also be something that like a lion could do. <laughs> that Scar is allowing the hyenas to eat whatever they want, which is throwing everything out of whack. It's this overconsumption, which is destroying the ecosystem, which is ruining everything. So we are imagining it as... There are all these natural resources in the Pride Lands, very valuable natural resources. You've got very valuable exotic woods, you have minerals, you have things like ivory, pelts, that Mufasa, there were exports, which is also a way that adventurers could kind of be aware of the Pride Lands as the source of these exotic materials for the rest of the more uh, European-y core, but that... Mufasa had this very strict control on use of them, very strict export limitations, whereas Scar has completely thrown that out the window. Yeah. Now it's it's a it's a Wild West <laughs> free-for-all. And so you have something that your older players are going to recognize as the signs of this ecological destruction. You're going to have deforestation, mm-hmm. strip mining. You're going to have this uh, merchants, just mat- like caravans of merchants coming in to buy these, the market's being flooded, and the natural resources are being consumed. Mm -hmm. And then with pelts and ivory and the natural resources that could come from animals, you could get to some really creepy places with that if you're playing a horror game and it's full of animal people. There Mm. are all kinds of fun things that could be happening to those poor loxodons. So uh, that's, that is a, that is a possible option for you if you want to making this game as creepy as humanly possible. One thing with the political situation that we see in the movie, because there are, even though they're lions and hyenas, they do have the politics. You've got the hyenas that have been living in the elephant's graveyard, right? And they're totally living on the margins. They're kind of just scavenging and trying to dig up whatever they can. And Scar is really able to kind of play on that, sense of outsiderness and that sense of grievance and pull them in. And you could very easily do that by having these tribes of gnolls that are living in the elephant's graveyard that Scar is able to broker an alliance with them, bring them in, have them be his enforcers and his spies, and just kind of playing up the actual the political implications of that rather than just this one lion struck this deal with these hyenas. And getting back to the the creepy possibilities with pelts and ivory and all that good stuff. There is the food shortage in the Pride Lands. And uh, there is there is a lot of good eating on a loxodon. Yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, mm-hmm. good couple of meals you yeah, can get from yeah, one yeah. adult loxodon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, gnolls historically are not, uh, not too, not picky, too picky, picky about eaters, yeah. yeah. But there's a really cool, creepy, horrifying thing that they, they had in the older editions of Ravenloft that was the idea of if a human or elf or any, any kind of PC race, basically, eats the flesh of another intelligent being, then they end up becoming a ghoul. It's, it's specifically a kind of super powerful ghoul called a ghoul lord, but you can easily reskin it to be to become a ghoul. It's just this curse comes upon them. It's doing ravenous, basically. 
the movie Ravenous. Um, not the feeling. Not, 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 the, not the feeling of intense hunger. You are afflicted with this uncontrollable craving for the flesh of intelligent beings and become this ghoul-like monster. And that is a really fabulous, creepy thing to do with a horror version of Lion King. That you gnolls know, typically, they're not picky eaters. They have no trouble with preying on intelligent beings. But now that they're in Ravenloft, the rules have changed. And as they're trying to sate their hunger on these these loxodons and herangon and gif and all these other intelligent species when they do that then they start feeling the hunger pangs coming on them and they start transforming and that was what we were alluding to with scar having the the special familiar like powers is the idea that maybe he has this stronger control over these these ghoul gnolls um, you could use the stats for witherlings from volo's guide to monsters they would make for good ghoul like gnolls since they're they're already already gnolls yeah <laughs> And having these ghoulies transformation happening, some of the gnolls are starting to become supernaturally sort of mutated and more ghoul-like, more undead. And Scar has this more direct control, the psychic connection to them. That is a great way to introduce a conflict with Shenzi. Mm-hmm. Because you do have, and I love it, it's subtle, but it's there in the whole thing. She has her own agenda. Like, her agenda is her, her pack. And she's working with Scar, but especially the ending... She does have her own ideas and her own plans. And you, you know, get the scene where they're complaining about how they're hungry and there's some you know, she's giving him some pushback. So this being a thing, I think, because they do have it good, right? They, they have it better than they had under Mufasa in a lot of ways, but that she's starting to become aware that this deal, this relationship with Scar is starting to corrupt her people and to put them more directly under Scar's control. Shenzi is such a great character. Shenzi's probably my favorite character in The Lion King because you could really have a lot of fun with this NPC where she has... This is her fault, right? I mean, she, she helped put Scar in control. Very thematic. Yeah, exactly. She's kind of... <laughs> she's just got all her Dark Lord stuff going on, too. If Scar wouldn't be in control without her help, and now he is in control, and she's he's given the Knolls all this unprecedented power, but she's watching them turn into these horrible ghoul creatures that are under his control and she has to know that it's because of something that she did but at the same time if she does something against scar number one can she even because of his geese and number two are they going to have to go back to the elephant's graveyard living on the margins again and maybe you could even put in some parallelism with scar with well if she does that she has to admit she's wrong and she's not ready to do that you can get into a lot of really fun juicy stuff with her and that's one thing we're doing is there is, it seems silly to say this because it's about talking animals, but it's a political story. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason it's a great, great adventure or location adventure setting. So you've got the potential political conflict with Shenzi and the hyenas. And then you've also got some really interesting stuff making explicit the political relationships with Sarabi and Nala. There are so many cool women in this setting. My gosh. <laughs> How does this movie not pass the Bechdel test? There are so many cool women. Because, <laughs> yeah, there's there's also, you know, you've got, you've got Shenzi and kind of everything that's going on with the devil's bargain that she's made. And then, meanwhile, you've got Sarabi. And you, the way we see Sarabi in the movie, she hates Scar's guts, but she is supportive of him because she believes him to be the king. You know, she criticizes him. She says we have to leave Pride Rock. But when he says that they can't, then she, you know, she pushes back. But you don't know if she's ever actually going to do anything past that. She's just going along with what he says because he's the king, even though she despises him. 
you could very easily have her be the leader of the Leonin nobility. In the movie, they're all lionesses because it's more or less based on pride dynamics other than the fact that Scar is there in the first place at all. But if you wanted to, for, for your version, you could have it be mixed not, it's, 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 as much as you want. She's probably going to have a lot of respect from the rest of the nobility, and she's going to be a really powerful a sign of his authority, the fact that she does support him. You know, this is this is probably a thing that he just tells everybody you know, anytime Sarabi is in a public appearance with him. He makes sure that he's just putting that everywhere because he wants everybody to know that there is this continuity that, no, Mufasa's widow supports his reign. Mufasa's widow has accepted the validity of his claim, the legitimacy of his claim, and thus, who else? Who could argue with that? You might argue with Scar, but are you going to argue with Sarabi? Are you really? The other one that we have is Nala, and we don't really see Nala in the Pride Lands as an adult. The only time we see her, she's you know, she's run off to find Simba. But since she has run off to find Simba, you get the sense that she's a bit more of a firebrand, right? She is the one who takes a direct action against Scar. Yes. And it's not a super direct action, but it's more than we see anybody else do. Mm-hmm. So you could you could very easily have Nala acting as this rallying point, this, this focal point for anyone who does want to muster the willpower to get past this geese and rebel. That anyone who's trying, maybe they're trying to find some magical way past it, maybe they're just trying to muster their willpower, maybe these are just the people who feel comfortable getting together and complaining about Scar without Sarabi glaring at them. But either way, Nala works really well at being the symbol of resistance. So we have the sort of two lionesses that are the two reactions to Scar's rule. And one is the sort of very reluctant acceptance of the rule as just his right as king. And the other is the one who is more questioning and more pushing back, converting it into more of a explicit political situation. But in terms of converting the physical setting of the Pride Lands into more of a classic D&D setting, mm-hmm. we've got a couple of major locations that your PCs could go to. And the first is obviously Pride Rock. So as I said, in our imagining, this is not just a mountain or a rock naturally occurring. This is a palace. This is the residence of the royal family. This is where the royal court happens. This is this like large gathering place where you have these, so you have this balcony where the where the newborn king is presented to the people. Public oh, appearances it is a happen. Balcony, yeah, isn't right. It? Oh yeah, they hold them up over the, oh, the balcony, balcony yeah. and everyone cheers. And there, you know, this is this is also a serious a site of ceremony. Mm-hmm. And we are imagining you go there and they see there is this all this new construction work, and it's suddenly much more luxurious. That one of the things we're imagining is that Scar, as he's opened up the natural resources for freeform exploitation, <laughs> that that means a lot of money and a lot of luxuries from other domains are pouring into the Pride Lands. For him. For him, yes. And we, it really seems to fit Scar that he would build this super luxurious, what might previously Pride Rock, the palace, might have been a very... A gorgeous palace. Yeah, a gorgeous palace, but a very simple and in many ways very practical. Mm -hmm. Like a, a really super high quality, but very sparse and very simple. And now Scar is converting into Versailles on the savannah. It's <laughs> gilding everywhere. It's statues everywhere. It's tapestries everywhere. And he's expanding and he's adding all these wings. There's a giant statue of himself. There isn't is there? absolutely oh my gosh. a giant statue of Scar <laughs> gazing beneficently down upon that guy. Yeah, man. right. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> 
And that this is one of those things where it's easy for Scar to say, look what a great king I am. Look how I'm making our nation stronger and richer and greater than it was before. Because look at my palace versus look at Mufasa's palace, where it's going to be obvious to the, you know, all the people and to the PCs that this is this just like over the top, gilded, wasteful, garish, garish, just decadent nobles home. Mm-hmm. And another one we're imagining, and this one, you don't necessarily need structures there, but having the Baobab Grove. And this is Rafiki's domain. Rafiki is, well, he's a very powerful archdruid, a very ancient archdruid. He's the spiritual leader of the Pride Lands. He is respected by all, deep, deep respect by all. You know, we see all the animals bowing to him as he's walking up to Pride Rock in the opening scene. And he is, in our imagining, he has accepted that Mufasa and Simba are dead. He has accepted that Scar is the king. Because as far as we see in the movie, he never does otherwise. He just sits in the Baobab Grove and is sad. (laughs) Yeah. And so in our imagining, we are conceptualizing that he's in this kind of deep state of meditation. That he is withdrawn from most of society And that's another kind of loss the creatures feel in a sense of dislocation and disorientation under Scar's reign if they lack the spiritual leadership, but that he's just sort of had this hermit-like existence trying to understand why everything's going wrong. Because he doesn't know what we know, which is that Scar is not the proper king. Yeah, because he has his commitment to nature and his, his dedication to nature, but he's also got his dedication to the monarchy and to the idea of the monarchy. And they've never come in conflict before. And probably with the spirituality of the Pride Lands we see, he never thought it was possible that they could come into conflict. But now he's having this real crisis of faith and is just isolating himself, trying to work his way through it. And speaking of spirits... <laughs> speaking of spirits, another setting that we have is the Gorge, where the wildebeest stampede happens. And there's not a whole lot to that. Like, probably these were actual wildebeests if you want to have them be killed in a stampede. It, it is. There are animals. And that they're, will kill you. Yep, that will they kill will you. kill you. Yeah. Just because there are animal people in the Pride Lands doesn't mean that there aren't real animals in the Pride Lands. And, and yeah, if they stampeded, they would kill you. So... On the one hand, it doesn't seem like there's a lot that you could do with just kind of a gorge where a tragedy happened, except the thing that you can do anywhere where a tragedy happened, which is there are rumors of Mufasa's ghost haunting the gorge. As a GM, it's up to you whether these rumors are true or not. If you want to have Mufasa's ghost show up and talk to the PCs, or if you want the ghost to kind of not fully remember who it is and be vengeful, you could do that also. But whatever the case, there are rumors that the gorge is haunted. There are rumors that it's accursed. Uh, maybe Scar is even promoting these rumors. Maybe he's Scooby-Dooing it because he doesn't want people to go and investigate the gorge and find out that there's foul play. But either way, there are, there are these rumors of a ghost there. And it's up to you as a GM whether or not they're true. And it's always useful in this kind of setting, especially where there's a very good chance the PCs are going to come into conflict with this kind of oppressive political system Mm -hmm. to have kind of the place that no one goes. Yes. It's a good place for secret meetings. It's very believable in the fiction if you want them to have this kind of place they can go to that Scar always avoids it and the hyenas usually avoid it and that a lot of the other animals avoid it. If it's haunted and there really is... You know, you go there to have your secret meeting with Nala, and then a ghost lion attacks you. All the better. Yes. (laughs) 
And then the other really bad place that we see in the movie is the elephant's graveyard. That's where we're going to be having our knoll settlements or kind of our abandoned knoll ghost towns because now they've all moved into the Pride Lands and everything's great, right? But in the elephant's graveyard, we've still got our ghost towns there. Maybe there are a couple of like dissident knolls who are there who don't agree with, with this deal that they made with Scar. Maybe maybe you can still find a couple of knolls who are camping out in the elephant's graveyard and who want to stay there rather than join in. Maybe some of them are abandoning ship. Or maybe you could have me that there are some that even though they are on board with Scar, they're still going there out of just a sense of history and a, a, a sense of kinship to the place. But either way, you could definitely have the Elephant's Graveyard have some plot hooks to it. And this is could be another one of those. This could be the place where they can go and not have any prying eyes. Or it could be a place they can go have a private meeting with Shenzi mm. where, you know, the ones more loyal to Scar aren't going to observe them. Having a bad, spooky place that's had this kind of upheaval, a lot of possibilities in terms for your PCs to take advantage of. And then the last place that we see is Hakuna Matata Jungle with Timon and Pumbaa. Right. But that's not really part of the domain proper since, you know, green and beautiful and jungly and Scar isn't in charge there. It's, it's explicitly outside of Scar's dominion. So there might be these legends that there's this beautiful green verdant jungle. This, this is just beyond the Pride Lands. Or maybe you could even have it be if you want to do a core, like they had in 2E and 3.5, if you want to have there be a core or a cluster, you could have it be that the Pride Lands border a jungle domain. And Simba fled into that domain. You could a do that. A jungle book domain? A jungle book domain. Perhaps. Simba's out there hanging with Shere Khan. I mean, Shere Khan's going to leave him alone. Yeah, he's, he's not human. He's Stay tuned for our jungle book episode. <laughs> Like, Shere Khan's got nothing against yeah, Simba yeah, no. and plenty of pigs to eat. So, <laughs> He's not a man cub, yeah. So you could either have it be that there's this domain there that he actually flees into. If you want to just have the isolated domains floating in the mist in 5e mode, then you could have it just be that sometimes when you go into the mist, they take you to the verdant jungle domain, or maybe sometimes they take you to Darkon or Borka or wherever the heck they want to, they're the mist. But either way, there are these legends of this, of this beautiful, green, untouched verdant jungle. And we're going we're gonna to go into those ideas of those legends and plots you can derive from them when we talk more about our plot hooks section. Which I think this is an excellent segue for talking about our plot hooks and different possibilities. What do you do with it? Dread Possibilities Scar was delighted to grant me an audience, pointing to the construction of his luxurious palace and the increase in exports to the core as evidence of his superior rulership, although no one else in the Pride Lands seems to have benefited. My guide, Scar's Aarakocra Majordomo, kept me on a tight leash during this visit, likely so I would not notice how gaunt the servants were. On our way out, however, the Majordomo accidentally allowed me to encounter Sarabi, the former queen, whose dignity and grandeur are untouched despite the lines of hardship that mark her face. While Sarabi shares her people's reverence for the office of the king, she clearly has none of that respect for Scar himself. I was left with the distinct impression that she prays in secret for him to meet an accident like that which claimed her husband and son. Nevertheless, when I asked whether she had any sympathy for Nala's band, she made all the proper noises about the rightful king before changing the subject. Scar's knoll captain of the guard came in shortly afterward to escort me from the premises. Perhaps it was my imagination, but she seemed discontent as well. Odd for one with her unprecedented levels of privilege and power. I want adventure in the Great Wide somewhere. I want it more than I can tell. 
in this part of the episode, we want to go through and, as we said at the beginning, give you actionable stuff. This is a cool setting. It's a cool conversion of the Lion King into a Domain Lord. You know, really fun, great art object. But how do you, the GM, take this setting and make it a story for your players to play through? It's kind of the problem with doing a Disney movie and adapting a Disney movie is that the main character of the Lion King is Simba. Well, presumably none of your players are playing Simba, right? None of them is going to be... We don't want to, like, railroad. Right. (laughs) But none of them are going to be, you know, the the lost prince coming back to reclaim the throne. So what story can you do? I'm going to divide the first part of this into two sections. And the first is, is what gets you there. Why did you come to the Pride Lands? Now, the great thing about Ravenloft is you can always just have the mist spit them out. One of the ways that the metaphysics of Ravenloft are per- perfectly tailored for plot hooks and for plot structure and to help GMs is that they can just be in the middle of an adventure in Barovia and they wander in a mist and then, hey, now there's a lot of Leonins and Loxodons and Heron gone around you and you're in the Serengeti. <laughs> but if you want something more directed, if you want your players to be making the choice to come to the Pride Lands, here's a couple of suggestions. One of those is economic. They're coming on a caravan. We mentioned in our version of the Pride Lands, you've had this huge economic boom, this possibly literal gold rush, but this gold rush of the natural resources of the Pride Lands being harvested and sold so Scar can have more luxuries and more decadence and more Mm -hmm. celebration of himself. And so, I mean, how many D&D adventures start with? caravan. Your players get hired to protect a caravan that's moving silks, moving tiles, moving whatever to the Pride Lands to sell in exchange for ivory and pelts and teak. And so then you can engage a plot hook from there. Another possibility if you have something that's more a a druid or a ranger in your party is something centered around Rafiki, because we are visualizing Rafiki as this legendary centuries-old archdruid, this just very, very high-level shamanic connection to nature. So it could be they need to get help from Rafiki, they need guidance from an archdruid, or it could be they get some kind of vision to help Rafiki, that mm-hmm. this, the, the sort of forces of nature, the natural world, the ecosystem, sends your ranger or your druid a message that Rafiki needs their help to realize the problem in the Pride Lands. And then finally, we have this issue we alluded to earlier, and we'll dig into in a little more detail in a minute, and that is the possibility of people being refugees. This is kind of going off the, you are Timon and Pumbaa and you meet Nala (laughs) in the jungle. That you have this prey animal people that are going to be turned into food for the hyenas. And one of them got away and you meet them and they either appeal to the better angels of your nature or they appeal to the better angels of your pocketbook (laughs) and they get you to help them rescue their, their family, their clan, their tribe. They know that they're kind of next up on the, on the grocery store shelf. And so the party's hired to kind of, find them and help them escape and lead them out of the pride. And the benefit there is you've got a strong, like the premise is not just go to the pride lands and find an adventure. You go in with a really strong goal that engages the setting. If you've got this loxodon that's coming out asking for your help, you have to go in and rescue the rest of their family. The rest of their family is being taken to have their tusks cut off or worse. 
and go there to help them. There was a wonderful thing in one of the second edition Ravenloft mods. I don't think, I think it was an unpublished one by John W. Mangrum. And it was saying that there are two possible ways to draw your PCs in. And it's either pulling heartstrings or pulling birth strings. <laughs> and uh, you can, you can do I'm either. I remember that. I know, right? It's great. <laughs> and if you wanted to really get Lion King with it, you could even have, instead of doing an escaped refugee, it could be Nala comes out for you so that if that's you, fun yeah <laughs> if knowledge coming out she's looking for help maybe maybe she's the one if you just want to go and fire on all cylinders and have the the young fire brand come out and seek out the pcs you could do that and that is a perfect transition to the next thing i want to talk about which is okay what's the story in the Pridelands? that's how you get them there but what it, what's the story when they're there and there's three basic stories we thought of a lot of them are centered around, as we said, as weird as this is with this talking animal movie, it's a political story. It's uh, unless you're willing to really chuck Cannon out the window and have them assassinate Scar and take the crown, then <laughs> you are paving the way for Simba's return. And the nice thing here is it's not just, a, oh, and then I guess there's a happy ending. Hooray. <laughs> this is you players have seen The Lion King. They know what's going to happen, and hopefully they'll feel the satisfaction of, hey, we we paved the way for that. We let that happen. Mm -hmm. So destabilizing the current situation. We mentioned Scar's kind of got these three women that he's in interacting with that are of this political setup, and any of those, this could be like the critical domino that starts falling that's, that's going to lead to Simba's successful coup. And so it could be convincing Nala to take a more active, maybe she's kind of like this, this central figure of the grumbling discontent lion, Leonins, convincing her to take a leadership role, convincing her to actively go seek help. So you watch that scene where they, she goes to the jungle and you're like, ha we did that. <laughs> or convincing Sarabi to start to rethink her loyalty. That you, a lot of Scar's rule in our version is depending on Sarabi's support and just making her rethink that, making her rethink her loyalty to the concept of the monarchy. And then finally, you have the helping Shenzi sort of take another look at the alliance she's made and just planting those seeds of doubt, saying, hey, maybe this isn't what's best for the hyenas. Hey, maybe we're not Scar isn't actually our friend. Maybe we're the enemy. And then they eat him and you go, <laughs> we did that. Maybe that happens before Simba comes back. And that actually is, speaking of before Simba comes back, if you know that your party is not going to want to play this kind of second banana role, you know, some of your, some of your parties absolutely will be totally happy to just be paving the way for Simba. Especially we're going to talk in a minute about jamming for kids. And I think kids would be totally happy absolutely, to just yeah. know that they're setting up for Simba. But there's a very good chance that your players are just going to want to kick Scar's butt right out of the Pride Lands. And if that's the case, then, you know, one possibility is Simba, theoretically, he ran away. Maybe his body was never found. Maybe there is no Simba. Maybe the PCs need to take matters into their own hands. And in that case, you could, again, be setting up for Shenzi to depose Scar. You could be setting up for Nala to depose Scar. You could be setting up for Sarabi to become the symbol of resistance and everyone rallies around her as the new queen. There, there are a lot of possibilities if your PCs don't want to wait for Simba and don't want to be kind of secondary characters here. Yeah, it's it's one of those things we mentioned before. There's the totally valid critique of Ravenloft that the Dark Lords are these very central characters, kind of the protagonists of each domain. 
and that means your PCs are not. Mm-hmm. And it also is a very valid criticism that the Dark Lords literally have plot armor. The, mm-hmm. the metaphysics of the universe they live in mean they can't be defeated or overthrown or banished. Mm-hmm. No matter how many times, probably literally millions of adventurers have staked Strahd von Zarovich through the heart and poured holy water in his coffin and burned his body and beheaded him. He always comes back. I, I mentioned at the beginning I've run ten separate Ravenloft games. I can count the number of times I've brought in Dark Lords as major antagonists on the fingers of one hand for exactly this reason. I usually have it be kind of secondary villains or villains that I've made up myself so that I can just have the PCs kill them. (laughs) And this actually does, however, harmonize with doing a canonical universe Mm -hmm. like a Disney movie. How much are you are you going to deviate from the meta plot? It's the same question you're going to ask yourself running any canonical setting. And running Ravenloft if you're engaging the Dark Lord. Like, if you're running a Star Wars game, are you going to say, my players can go to Tatooine, go to Uncle Owen's farm, kick down the door, and shoot Luke Skywalker in the head? <laughs> like, pre if it's pre-New Hope. And that's a big question about the kind of game you're running. And either of those is a totally valid way to do this. But just make sure everyone's on the same page. Mm-hmm. And make sure everyone's cool, either giving a temporary defeat to Scar, giving him a setback, or even just setting kind of the whole i haven't seen the lion king one and a half but i understand a lot of it is timon and pumbaa running around kind of making the plot of the lion king happen and if they're okay being timon and pumbaa or if they're okay being marty mcfly in back to the future and just kind of manipulating your parents into falling in love then have a great game or even if they're okay being Jin urso going back to the star wars comparison if they're if you're okay being the ones who steal the death star plans so that luke can blow up the death star God bless. Have a great time. Yeah, it sounds like a the, great game. Well, what, a, what a perfect audience you are for our podcast. <laughs> but if you do want something a little more decisive, you're not looking for an adventure that's the full-on murdering Scar and taking engaged saying, you know what, Nala should be in charge, even though she should, but, you know, that's just that's a <laughs> podcast for another time. You could do that plot line we mentioned with the prey base. This is the mm-hmm. sort of the equivalent of you have this small-scale story. It's not going to end with you overthrowing Scar. But if there was a herd of Loxodon, they're being told to report to have their tusks removed, you know they're actually going to have a lot more than their tusks removed. <laughs> and you help that herd of Loxodon escape, you make a distraction, you do something that forces Scar to keep the borders open for that period, you have to make contact with them to wherever they're like they're hiding, you have to win over their trust, you have to like maybe do something where you convince Shenzi to look the, uh, to get the hyenas to look the other way while you move them over the border. Like that's a great adventure. Mm-hmm. And you do get the satisfaction of just a complete win. You won, Scar lost, you save the elephant people. They love you. They're all happy in their new jungle home, hanging out with Timon and Pumbaa. <laughs> and then you can move on to the next domain. And actually, thinking about it, if you're if you're talking about smuggling people out, another possibility might even be something where you're trying to get Nala or Sarabi out of there. Maybe you're the ones who get Nala out so that she can be looking for Simba in the first place. Like, helping one of these major characters escape could be really satisfying for the PCs, because Nala and Sarabi are going to be having a pretty miserable time of it. Whatever you decide, as we said, just make sure if you're doing, we're just dipping into canon, we're being Jin or so, make sure everyone knows it, make sure everyone's cool with it, everyone's having fun, and if not, then go crazy. <laughs> The other thing we have in this what do you do with it section is what we call dread possibilities. These are some different AUs and uh, different versions of the game that you can run. 
With the Lion King, there aren't a whole lot of AUs, because as Tom said, you're pretty much running up between verses one and two of Hakuna Matata. Just There's- give everybody opposable thumbs and pants. And- <laughs> or don't give them or pants. Or don't, you know. <laughs> it's your game. But just make every make, make them all Leonin, give them how give them houses or tents or whatever, and an economy, and there you go, ready to party. But one thing that we are going to do uh, every time we have these dread possibilities is talking about how to age it down and how to age it up. Some of you who are listening to a podcast about Disney are going to be listening to a podcast about Disney games because you have kids and they're excited about Disney. They're maybe you're interested in gaming with them. And with a horror game like Ravenloft, especially, it's really important to make sure that you kind of walk that line of being just creepy enough without horribly scarring your kids for life as terrible things happen to their favorite characters. But maybe you're listening and you're not jamming for kids. Maybe you're interested in jamming for an adult party and you really want to dig into the horror. We're going to talk about aging up and how to make this a really solid horror game for adults. So for aging down, one possibility is kids are going to be a lot more open to the idea of just keeping talking animals. They're going to have fun with Loxodons. They're going to have fun with Leonin. But adults, I think, would feel really silly about just, you know, going and talking to a hyena and the, a little hornbill who's, who's, who's going around and doing with stuff. With a British accent. With a British accent. But kids are going to completely take this in stride, especially for playing The Lion King. So if you want to do talking animals with kids, go nuts. Um, if you want to do a Kingdom Hearts thing and have it be that the PCs turn into animals when they go to the Pride Lands. That could be a lot of fun that for kids. That could be super fun for kids. You could either surprise them or work with them to decide what animal best fits their PC's personality. They would have a blast with that. If you do this, a uh, little piece of advice, don't uh, do a lot of hand-waving with stats. Don't yes. pull out the stat for a wild, the stat card for a wildebeest from the monster manual. Just say, you know what, you have all your stats and... Instead of your sword, it's just the damage your claws do, and your armor is your hide, and you have all your stuff, and don't worry about it too much. 100%, yeah, because if if one character really has a very lion-like personality, and another character has a very meerkat personality, your meerkat kid is going to be so mad at you, and rightfully so. Significantly lower CL for that guy. (laughs) The other really big thing for if you're playing with kids is to make sure that you're soft peddling the horrific implications of what's going on with the uh, exploiting the sentient beings. We mentioned with the Loxodons reporting to get their tusks cut off to make ivory and a whole lot else is going to get cut off. If you're playing with kids, it's just going to be their tusks. They'll be very sad that their tusks are missing. It's really going to make the kids sad to see these poor Loxodons without their tusks. But ultimately, they're going to be okay. You really want to soft pedal the idea of intelligent creatures getting killed. If you want to keep the witherlings, the ghoulnolls, then either really make sure that it's a very abstract idea of them eating people, because some kids can handle that. There are plenty of fairy tales and whatnot that involve horrible eating of people. And you know, that's, that's a pretty standard threat for the big bad wolf or whatever to, to be going after people with. So if you think that the kids you're playing with can handle it, you can have it be a thing that happens off screen and is very abstract. Or it can just be the idea that the more they're obeying Scar, the more they fail their will saves against his suggestion power, then the more they start turning into these horrible familiar-like creatures. And, and they're using the Witherlings then, yeah, they're undead, but it's just sort of a reflection of them becoming puppets to Scar's will. Mm-hmm. Once again, for this kind of thing, you have to be willing to abstract stuff a lot. 
Absolutely. The other thing we're going to talk about is aging up running this for adults. This is a family-friendly podcast. We try to keep this PG-rated, but we are going to be talking about some of the creepy implications of this, about some of the specific ways to be running this for adults. Also, content advisory, we're going to be talking about forced marriage here. So if this is a thing that you don't want to listen to, or if this is a thing that you don't want to listen to right now because you've got big-eared little pictures in the room, future Tom or future Rachel is going to jump in in just a second to tell you exactly how far ahead you need to skip, and then you can get back to this later or not, depending on what you want to do. This is future Rachel. If you want to skip past the aging up section, then go forward about 3 minutes and 40 seconds, around 1920 or so. It didn't get too graphic, honestly. If you were all right with everything that came before, then this should be fine. But if you want to play it safe, especially have kids in the room, completely understand. We'll see you in three minutes and 40 seconds. So for aging up, obviously there's a lot of horror to be had with the way that Scar is specifically exploiting these sentient creatures here, right? I mean, there's absolutely, there's the ecological horror of how he's exploiting the domain. Strip mining is horrible. Describing these awful desiccated wastelands is going to be really, really horrific and a great way to punch your druid or your ranger right in the fields. But the absolute worst thing to do is going to be talking about the way that he's exploiting the living creatures. Talking about rather than shying away from the gnolls and their new methods of feeding, really going into loving detail describing the way that the gnolls are feeding. Talking about maybe finding the area where they're preparing the parts that they've harvested from various creatures. And talking about some of them that have survived this, maybe that weren't fully exploited. Seeing the aftermath of that, seeing what's left of them, could be incredibly disturbing. If you've never read Pride of Baghdad by Brian K. Vaughn, it's uh, adults only. Yeah, right. Yeah, at, it sure at 100%. Is. Don't be like, oh boy, it's like a Lion King, the it's comic like book. It's like Lion King, the comic book. Now, this is what you want to do if you want to run a hard R horror movie Lion King, Pride of Baghdad by Brian K. Vaughn. And somebody's out there that wants that, and I hope you found our podcast. Because yeah, absolutely. this is the way this, we, we fixed it. We solved yes. your problem. It's everything horrific about being a lion is is right there on Pride of Baghdad and about being part of nature. It's it's what if what if Animal Farm were even more awful? The other thing that you could get into, as indicated by our content advisory, is if you wanted to go full Hamlet with it, one obvious way that Scar is giving this illusion of continuity with Mufasa's reign is if he were to marry Sarabi. Obviously, Sarabi wouldn't be on board with this because she hates Scar's guts, but he has his suggestion powers. He is the king. He can order her to do things. It's going to be gross, but it's there. He could even have the whole that he convinced her. And this could be a good plot hook. There could be a, t- a ticking time clock. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a ticking time bomb, but it is a bomb. A marriage bomb. A marriage that bomb. The wedding is coming yes. up to shore up his rule he's going to have this big public wedding to Sarabi and he's convinced her this is necessary for the political stability. This is necessary to maintain the kingdom. And then that could be the big victory your PCs do is convincing her to break off the marriage or if we want to tweak the timeline a little bit, then convincing her to, to leave, to escape. Mm-hmm. Or maybe convincing her that if she is his queen, then maybe she should be queen in her own right. If if you're able to try and get her to overcome that geese. Another possibility rather than Sarabi, which is they had this in a deleted scene in the movie, I believe, and they do it in the Lion King musical, is that they have him try to marry Nala. 
uh, because you know she's she was originally going to be Simba's fiance. She's younger than Sarabi. Sarabi probably can't give him an heir. And in the in the musical, and again, I believe in the deleted scene in the movie, this was the thing that precipitated Nala running away in the first place. Was she knew that if she stayed, she was going to have to marry Scar. So that's another ticking time bomb marriage. Or if you were to have them actually be married. It- you have to do a whole other thing with Nala because it doesn't really work for her to be the symbol of resistance. Uh, although if you have any ideas for how to make that work, then by all means, contact us and let us know. That sounds like, cool. Like, subscribe, leave a comment. Like, subscribe, leave a comment. <laughs> if, if that would be definitely more of a place to have trying to stop the marriage from happening, trying to get Nala out of there. Hopefully, between different things we've suggested about the setting, the NPCs, and the potential plot hooks and potential inciting incidents, you've got a cool, at least one cool idea about how to do a Lion King adventure, if you're a GM like me. And hopefully someday, at some point in your life, you'll be able to do one of those cool ideas, <laughs> if you're a GM like me. Because that is indeed the Forever GM's terrible, <sighs> terrible, glorious purpose. It's your Dark Lord curse. My Dark Lord. You have ah! so many ideas and you don't I will have never time be to able them to run them. <laughs> So let's step back and we're going to take one final overview of the Pride Lands as a Ravenloft Domain of Dread. And give our parting thoughts. In the section called Parting Thoughts. To wrap up our discussion of The Lion King, we want to talk about generally analyzing from a horror perspective and then analyzing it from the gaming perspective. So we'll start with the horror perspective. And one of the best things Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft did uh, was the concept of genres of horror. Mm-hmm. That it explained them very clearly, really clearly expressed that different domains as manifestations of different genres. One of the best, most intuitive, simple tools to determine what kind of horror you want to do for your Ravenloft domain and your Ravenloft adventure. Tom and I have independently come up with what we think the uh, genres of horror for The Lion King are, and we're going to share and discuss our thoughts now. This is real time, folks. This is live. (laughs) But first, I realize this is our pilot, and we are new podcasters, and I think you can tell that with a lot of things, like we let a chance to promote something we made slip away. (laughs) I didn't tell that joke in advance. I wanted to get the real, real-time react laugh. Also, we didn't check our pronunciation in advance. Time has passed between this recording and the earlier recording. We know it's Gesh, not Geese. Please don't doubt us. Thank don't, you. Thank you. <laughs> we made something uh, last year on DMs Guild. I'll put the link in the show notes, I assume is a thing podcasters say. It was called Ravenloft Gives Me Goosebumps, Genres of Horror. And in that, we went through each of the genres of horror from Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which I've just been praising. And we talked about how you see those genres of horror in horror material targeted at middle grade readers, at readers like 9 to Mm 12-ish. And using a bunch of examples, talking about how the tropes and themes of that genre get adapted for children, for younger readers. And honestly, and I say this as someone who wrote this work and is monetarily benefiting (laughs) from it, but if you are planning to run a, a spooky game, a more horror-themed game for younger players, you should get this book. If you want kind of a free sample, we also have a thing called Silly, Spooky, or Scary that is, I know it's our recommended reading list of horror from the past 10 years for kids because a lot of us haven't been reading kids' horror since the Goosebumps <laughs> and Mary Downing Hahn and John Belair's days. So if you want to know what's going on in kids' horror now, 
We've got a good recommended reading list in there. And what was the other thing? Also, uh, some of the movie recommendations, how to take Mm. well-known movies like Hocus Pocus or Corpse Bride or a third one. Coraline. Coraline. And how to adapt those to an art. Like, not a whole write-up. But, like, a couple of paragraphs about tips for adapting it for an RPG adventure. For, for children, specifically. Yes, yes. So if you want kind of a taste of what 99 cents will get you, then check out yeah. what free will get you there. So back to the podcast that you were listening for. <laughs> um, Plug ended. The genres of horror that I saw for The Lion King, I see sort of two, sort of three. I see one that is going to be across the board a major theme of the Pride Lands as we are imagining them, and that is uh, disaster horror. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> we are really playing into this theme of privation, of starvation. This is kind of a post-apocalyptic setting mm-hmm. that just everything is falling apart and everyone is starving, and that privation is driving a lot of the plots that are happening. It's driving the increasing atrocities committed by the hyenas. It's driving the increasing desperation and resentment against Scar's rule. And it's driving the, eventually, the lionesses who are currently at least nominally loyal to him turning against him. We've got roaming gangs of cannibals, for heaven's sake. This is basically Mad Max, but with lion people. And then the second one, it kind of depends on what flavor of venture you're doing. And so there's two possibilities I saw. And one is, I think, more obvious, and one is a little bit of a weirder choice. The first is doing a slasher, and that is if you are playing up the sense of being stalked. So this is more that type of adventure where you're trying to get the Loxodons or the Herringons out of the Pride Land, and the gnolls are stalking you and attacking mm. you. And just this sort of being in the forest, being on the grasslands, and feeling eyes watching you, wanting to eat you. And the second is, once again, sort of a weird choice, is psychological horror. Mm-hmm. And that's if you want to play up the paranoia. You're trying to kind of do a political story and get people to start turning against Scar, opposing Scar. But there's always that who's watching, who's reporting, who's going to sell you out for extra rations. To go back to our mini Star Wars examples, which I hope that you're all used to that because it's going to keep on coming. Buckle up. You might have somebody who's like DJ from uh, Last Jedi. You've got someone you think you can trust. They're really acting like they're your bestest buddy. And you know, the GM, if they really want to be horribly cruel like Rayon Johnson was and you know, telegraph that, oh no, this is totally a Han Solo type you're going to be able to trust. And then they end up turning on you. And it can be for more sympathetic reasons than DJ. DJ was just this total, I can't say the word that I want to say about DJ because this is a PG-rated family-friendly podcast. But I'm thinking all kinds of terrible words about DJ and I will settle for a jerk. DJ was a terrible jerk who just kind of sold them out because he didn't see any difference between the resistance of the First Order. But you could just as easily have had it be that DJ sold them out because he was worried about what the First Order would do to him, that he had a more sympathetic motive. And you could really easily do something with some gift sales out of the PC because they know that their family is next on the chopping block, or even just because they are starving and they want more food. You could have that sympathetic reason, and all it takes is one betrayal like that for this constant sense of paranoia. So those are my genres of horror. Rachel, how about you? As evidenced by the fact that I said so. I I also went to slasher horror. Yes. (laughs) I didn't think about slasher horror. That is a good fit with the uh, the old stalking users uh, trying to evacuate people. If I had to choose a second genre, I would probably go with psychological horror. Although, honestly, it's one of those, like, Morgan, it's got the one genre of disaster horror that fits so well. And I think pretty much everything else you could do fits under that umbrella. Yeah, both the slasher and the psychological horror in my examples are 
kind of radiating out from the disaster horror. Mm-hmm. I could also actually see gothic horror. Mm. That you've got this sense of the past that the Scar has committed this terrible sin and everyone knows something terrible has happened, but not what Scar did. And you've got this sort of like telltale heart-like secret just waiting to erupt that's going to destroy his entire world. Very so interesting. That, I don't like it as much as psychological horror, but gothic horror is definitely a possible fit. And you've even got the prominence of the setting and the way that the setting reflects him and whatnot in a very Heathcliff-like way, but with Savannah's instead of Morse. Could make a gothic horror an interesting choice. That would be something to play up the gothic would be a very different flavor in a very interesting way. Mm-hmm. And then then to shift from the horror, now shifting more into the gaming. Another thing we're going to look at in terms of utility is we're going to take a step back and kind of put our, our mutual GM goggles on and say, what sort of game do I get out of this setting? So some of the settings of Ravenloft, you can have, ma- you know, the Curse of Strahd is this massive campaign just in Barovia. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of very rich, very complex, tons of plot hooks, tons of factions, tons of things to interact with domains. And there are other domains that are really like one story. What's the evil puppet one? Odier. Odier, thank you. And like there's one thing you do in Odier. You go and you get turned into puppets and you fight a puppet and it's spooky. <laughs> and then you're like, wow, remember that time we got turned into puppets? That's still great. Like, no shade either one way or the other. Those those are both totally valid things for a domain to be. In this case, I'd say this is more leaning to a Barovia type setting. Mm-hmm. That this is a, you could do, especially if you're willing to go off meta plot and do your own thing, you could do a, easily a, a very long, months-long campaign mm-hmm. of political intrigue and, like, factions, resource management, plots and schemes and politics. You can do individual, you know, shorter adventures. But that this is really a setting that can be a a wider campaign, multiple arcs, multiple subplots going on. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to do a one shot, then the going in and rescuing the family of Gif or Haragon or Loxodons or whatever is a good way to do that, to just kind of jump in and jump out. But you could also do that rescue mission as sort of the jumping off point for a much wider campaign. That, okay, well, yeah, you're going in and you're trying to rescue family of Gif, but then it turns out that family of Gif, they've got something going on where the reason they're on the chopping block was because they were working with Nala. So, okay, you have to find Nala and, like, talk to her and see if you're able to, like, pull in some favors to help these Gif out. But, you know, she doesn't really have any favors to give, otherwise she would have helped them out already. So you have to figure out some way to bolster her up in order to save them. It can be kind of the first domino that leads to a much wider campaign. Right, or, like, you could even do a thing where, okay, you need to get Scar to have the borders open to get something. So you get Sarabi to you kind of win her over and get her to convince Scar to do that. Like she wants something from some other rat domain, so he keeps the borders open. So when that thing's coming in, you can be sneaking the gif out. And that but that cooks you in a Sarabi storyline. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole this sympathy of, oh my gosh, she really doesn't want to marry Scar. <laughs> and then you get involved in the more complex political story. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be doing it as part of this larger campaign tying a lot of plot hooks, then you might want to incorporate some of the other domains into this game, some of the the wider Ravenloft worlds. Whether you're doing this as the older version of Ravenloft, where there was a core, a continent that had all kinds of complex interpolitical situations, or you just want to bring a little bit of that into a 5e game to kind of make it feel like a wider world. There's kind of the question of how 
these new domains that we're making might connect to some of the other ones. There are a couple possibilities there. We already mentioned that Timon and Pumbaa, they are clearly in some kind of jungle place. If you want to have them be accessible, then they're going to still have to be in Ravenloft because you're stuck in the Deadline Planet of Dread, sorry. So they could be in Valachan. They could be in, I think Calicari has jungles. Yeah, yeah, um, I yeah. believe you're right. Um, if, you're, if you're doing the older stuff, they could be in the Wildlands or Sriraji, which is what they used to call Calicari. If you want to be bringing in a whole Kingdom Hearts Disney multiverse here, <laughs> they could be hanging with Shere Khan. That's one possibility is that there's this jungle domain nearby. And depending on what jungle domain you decide to go with, that's going to have a big effect on things. If it's Valachand, then what's going to be going on with the fact that there are all these core horrible, bloody survival games going on right next to the Pride Lines. Maybe on a regular basis, people are running over there trying to try their luck at the Hunger Games because hmm. who knows, maybe they'll win and then they won't be starving anymore. <laughs> maybe they're they're trying to you have know, a again. Maybe if they're trying to go and draft themselves into one of these warring armies, War is terrible, but it's three hots in a cot. That's better than what they've got right now. You also, with uh, Calicari, have... It is a political setup. It's like a civil war. So if you really wanted to do Game of Thrones with <laughs> yeah. cartoon lion people... <laughs> Then and and rolling d20s, mm-hmm. then you could do that. You could have the trade relations, the political relations. You could have this whole crazy, complex political alliances and intrigue, and really bizarrely enough, get this incredibly Byzantine political game with the Lion King. Maybe one of the factions has promised to support Nala if she is able to overcome the Gesh. Look, I said it right that time. And overthrow Scar. They both have a bunch of different political factions going on and a bunch of crazy potential, yeah, Game of Thrones alliances that they could be, <laughs> that they could be throwing around. Another possibility for bringing in other domains is what we were talking about with trade, that Scar has really opened up trade, that he's both importing all of these amazing luxury goods and that he's trying to export you know, his own ivory and pelts. Please don't ask where he got the pelts from and don't look too closely at whether or not those look like Tabashi over there. Just <laughs> don't, don't ask questions. So one definite possibility, no matter what edition you're going with, is that he's working on trade relations with Borka. Play along at home. <laughs> stamp, stamp Lion King on your Rachel references Borka bingo card. But Borka in every edition has been this huge exporter of luxury goods, whether it's Ivana's perfumes or whether it's just because they are decadent Borgia Italy making all these luxuries that no one could possibly need because they're one-upping each other and they're ostentatious displays of wealth. Who else loves ostentatious displays of wealth? Scar does. So Scar is definitely going to have some trade relations going on with Borka. And in the meantime, the Borkans are absolutely going to be eating up the possibility of having these imports from a domain that they can't possibly get naturally from Borka, right? You can't get your tabaxi fur rug from uh, from Borka. You've got to import it from the Pride Lands. Or even just if before ivory was very rare and it was just, say, like Mufasa allowed the occasional harvesting of the elephant's graveyard, then that noble family that your rivals with, they probably don't have a lot of ivory stuff. So suddenly it's a thing that could easily become fashionable mm-hmm. and a way for them to start one-upping each other. Mm-hmm. 
But then if there starts to be too much of it, then suddenly it becomes passe. And what's that going to do to the Pride Lands? Suddenly everybody has ivory, and Scar suddenly has to find some other natural resource to exploit because he's flooded the market with too much ivory too fast. Classic Scar. Classic Scar! Speaking of classic Scar... Another possibility that is really more for the older material, because in the newer material, this domain is possibly even more of a hellhole than the Pride Lands, is that in the older stuff, Falkovnia, the reason that people had any kind of relationship with Falkovnia at all, was that it had this incredibly lush, fertile soil and was the, they repeatedly refer to it in the material as the breadbasket of the core. Just it's ideal soil for growing. They've got lots of food. Who doesn't have lots of food? The Pride Lands. Scar could really plausibly be making eyes at making an alliance with Falkovnia, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> it is not going to end well, especially because in the older material, Falkovnia's main horror wasn't zombies, it was horrifying xenophobia, and horrifying xenophobia is not going to go over well in a domain full of strange lion people and gnolls and whatnot. It's not going to be good. But again, Classic just, Scar. as much as he thinks he's known for his his canny thinking and foresight and meticulous planning, he's, he is going to make some very foolish decisions. So those are some possible powder kegs to throw into a Pride Lance campaign that touches on the wider world of Ravenloft. If you're doing 5e, I don't really see that working because Falkovnia doesn't really have much to offer any outside domains. You could choose one of the other domains that just has an agricultural mm -hmm. presence. So not like one that's actively got food shortages. Like I think Rishmalo yeah. is like starving. Mm -hmm. But like Barovia, like they got farms. They're yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that could be just a plot hook to connect your PCs from that domain to the Pride Lands. It would even be just, hey, Scar is, is purchasing leftover barley. <laughs> from the Barovian farmers. Yeah, especially if you were able to to link it to a domain that has kind of an expansionist bent or is going to have a, a Dark Lord that's really going to be trying to twist this to their advantage, like, like Strahd, then you could get kind of that same feel. So to wrap up, let's talk about the strengths and the challenges of the domain. If you're at home listening, and I, I do hope you are, <laughs> and you say to yourself, wow, I'm very interested in this Pride Lands, Ravenloft idea. What are some of the pros? What are some of the cons that you're going to have to think through if you want to, as we said, be actionable and actually take this and run it for your home group? For strengths, and there's a lot of them. This is really good. There's a reason we picked this for the pilot. Mm -hmm. You got a cool political setup, but it's not too complicated. That it's interesting. It's not just the good guys and the bad guys. You've got the hyenas to be this kind of wild card faction. And you've got Sarabi, who is a good guy, but isn't actively doing anything. She's a good guy, but she's complicit. But that's not too complicated for, like, you know, a group of, like, 12-year-olds to get the politics and to get how to do stories with the politics. It's a cool environmental horror domain. Um, There aren't a lot of those. There's Haslan in the in the Van Richten's Guide, but that is going for the crazy magic apocalypse, like, reality's bending it on itself, whereas this is much more of a real-world environmental collapse disaster horror type setting. And in a way that's not really heavy-handed. There was there was an environmental collapse, environmentalist oh, setting yeah, in the older so Yeah, Gnosis. I kid you not, the Dark Lord, his parents were druids, and Daddy loved nature more than he loved Malus Scleris. <laughs> so when when Daddy died, Malus Scleris swore revenge on nature. On nature. <laughs> 
the nineties were a heck of a time yeah, right? in real life. <laughs> no, it's like he just kind of like pollutes just for fun. Yes. Like a Captain Planet. Villain. Yes. We're just really showing our age in this one, aren't we? But the, the Pride Lands isn't like that. It's yeah. it, this is the reason people actually pollute and exploit the environment, because they're greedy and short sighted. And for, to make the Ravenloft setting we have not needed to do a lot of lore changes. So there's some of these movies where we're going to have to do pretty significant lore changes to make it work. So it's like, duh, Mao, it's Moana, but Mao is evil. It's Little Mermaid, but Ursula married Eric, and Ariel is a plant. And this, that's extra work for you to do. Mm-hmm. And that's also a kind of extra work for your players to learn those differences. Whereas this is just, it's between verse one and two of Akuma. Every If you've seen The Lion King, you know the setting. Mm-hmm. You know the NPCs. You know the relationships. And you can interact with those in a fun and emotionally fun way. And this is especially going to be good with kids because their favorite NPC is not dead or evil. But there are some challenges to gaming in this setting. Not too many because this setting is just great. One definite challenge is the animal people, especially if you're going to be playing with the older material. If you're playing old Ravenloft, then it is a very low magic setting, very human centric. It's going to be a real culture shock for people who are used to puttering around in a Dracula that maybe has a half elf every three sessions in it to suddenly they're surrounded by lion people and gnolls. And even if you're playing in 5e, it might be a little bit startling if you're used to Barovia to suddenly be in this this animal people domain. It might be tricky to do some of the, the normal interactions right off the bat because there aren't towns there to begin with, right? We're not basing this off of a movie that has towns and cities and settlements in it. Some of the other domains that we're going to be talking about, it's like, okay, well, when we talk about um, Princess and the Frog, well, there's the restaurant where Tiana's a waitress, so you can really easily turn that into the tavern where the PCs go. There's nothing like that in The Lion King. There, There is no tavern. There's no blacksmith. There's no inn. You have to come up with all of that from scratch. And you have to come up with kind of the NPCs who are who are staffing those from scratch. That's going to be a bit of a challenge also. And then the most interesting conflict is going to be this political setup. And to do that justice, you really need a lot of sessions and possibly an entire campaign or mini campaign. Uh, and people, when they if they're imagining going to the Lion King, it's great to be yeah. evacuating refugees. They're going to enjoy that. But I think most of your players, if you say we're going to play the Lion King, they're going to want to depose Scar. They're going to, or at least be part of deposing Scar. And setting off those powder kegs, if you really want to explore everything with the, the different factions and exploiting all the fault lines there, that's going to be several sessions, if not an entire mini campaign. Of course, if you just want to drop them in, you know, there is Strahd Must Die Tonight and other things that right, show right. that there's this demand for shorter stuff. The Lion King did it in an hour and a half. Yeah, right. So if, if you want to do a compressed version, <laughs> it is doable. Maybe it's just how much we're in love with this setting that we think that it needs a long time, because I would totally play for months in the practice. Yeah. This is awesome. <laughs> and also, a lot of it's going to be tone in terms of building relationships. Because to do a political story where you're outlanders and you drop in and you're getting involved in political conflict, you would usually expect that to involve multiple sessions of sort of learning the terrain and meeting the NPCs and feeling them out and gaining their trust, which is what I would love to do with the setting. But if you just want to do like a Star Trek The Next Generation original series episode where you just sort of go to planet Pride Lands overthrow the king, get on the Enterprise and sail away 49 minutes later. As long as everybody's cool with that, as long as everybody finds that dramatically satisfying, 
yeah, you can do that. There is kind of a happy medium of mm -hmm. doing like a small arc. I don't know if you can do a one shot, but doing like a two, three, four session arc to cover this political material. So, parting thoughts. There's a reason that we picked this for our pilot. The Pride Lands is a great setting. Scar's a great Dark Lord. It's everything you could possibly need for a Ravenloft game this year. Absolutely. This is a fantastic setting, if we do say so ourselves. <laughs> the hardest... We barely had to do any work. Yeah, first. right. We're, we're like, part of me feels like we're tooting our own horns. We're like, no, it was all right there. <laughs> Just gave him pants. The... <laughs> or maybe they're Donald right. Duck. I don't know. It's your right. name. <laughs> the hardest thing in doing this game would be I would want to do this incredibly complex political and economic story. And that's my kind of specific brand of nerdery. <laughs> so if we have leaned too far into like saying that's what you should do with this setting, we apologize. Run a game of the Pride Lands going to be great. So that's about it for the Lion King. If you want to contact us, then you can email us at wonderfulworldofdarklords at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Wonderful World of Dark Lords. Wonderful World of Dark Lords is way too long for Twitter, and it turns out that even Wonderful Dark Lords is way too long for Twitter, so you can find us on Twitter at Wonder Dark Lords. Wow. <laughs> we have the best Twitter. We do for our have the best Twitter. And we will put all of this in the show notes. Yes. Is a thing podcasters normally say in this part of the episode. <laughs> And before we join our narrator and you get to listen and find out where she is going next and what domain we are doing next month, I want to let you know that we are also going to take this work we've done making the Pride Lands domain and write it up in the Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft domain style and put it up for free on DMs Guild. So we'll have the link for that in the show notes as well. Also, if you just go to DMs Guild and search for Pride Lands or Tom Kohler, then you'll be able to find it. Tom Kohler is K-O-L-A-R, like polar or solar, but with a K. It's not like the faucet. My life is this. <laughs> um, also, it's pronounced Kohler, not Kolar. Not Kolar. And speaking of Kolar and <laughs> taking things from movies and putting them on DMs Guild, I also have a few adventures on DMs Guild adapting horror movies, if you're more in the horror running for adults side of our listener fan base. And I have The Fog by John Carpenter. I have Halloween by John Carpenter. And you can probably guess what director I like a lot. And I hope to have some more up on DMs Guild as time goes by. Also as a podcast, and so I have to plug my own stuff, you can find me at www.rachelkohler.com. Once again, that's K-O-L-A-R, like and, polar, but with a K. And not pronounced Kolar. And not pronounced Kolar. My maiden name is Armstrong. I never had to deal with any of this before I married <laughs> There you can find links to some of the short stories that I've written. If you want to read a horror satire about multi-level marketing, then this is the place for you to go. You can also find information about my picture book, Mother Ghost, Nursery Rhymes for Little Monsters. It's 13 classic nursery rhymes rewritten to be about Halloween and is available in Barnes & Noble, your local independent bookstore. If you must go to the massive bookseller named after the river in South America, I understand, but I would prefer if you can avoid going there, then please go somewhere else. But like buy a copy. That's, <laughs> that's the important takeaway from this segment. Thank you for listening and happy gaming. Parting thoughts. The Pride Lands are a cursed and desolate place, ruled by a tyrant who seems set on squandering all the riches it once had to offer. The people suffered terribly, and I confess I breathed a sigh of relief when I left it behind. 
As the heat shimmer around the domain cooled into mist, I held my candle token close and prepared to enter an entirely different land, with a lush forest, a beloved matriarch, and a thriving village called Encanto. I send this to you, my patron, with my regards. D. This is sloppy at best, my little servant. I expect further reports to be more thorough. You pay little heed to the events that occurred to issue in Scar's reign. These events are key to determining the nature of the dreadlords that rule these misty lands. I suspect untimely is not the correct description of the previous ruler and his son's deaths. As for this Scar, it seems he himself is a scar upon the land, if the memories of its populace are to be believed. Though it is natural for the rabble to respect the authority of the monarchy, the disconnect among the populace and their inability to act against a newly appointed leader suggests there is more to Scar than his lazy, self-serving rule. This deserved further study that you did not provide. On one point we can agree, my servant. Your magical studies require ample guidance, so you may look past the mundane and see the truth. This has been The Wonderful World of Dark Lords. We have no affiliation with Disney or Wizards of the Coast. All music recordings used in this episode are in the public domain and were obtained through MuseOpen.org. Titles and links are in the show notes. Dialogue for Yensid was written by Azalyn Rex himself, who you can follow on Twitter at DarkLordAzalyn. The Wonderful World of Dark Lords logo was designed by Haylight Jones. You can find links to their work in the show notes. Thanks for listening. You could get into a lot of really fun, juicy stuff with Shenji. You could get into a lot of really fun, juicy stuff with Shenji. <laughs> Too many chas. You could get into a lot of really fun, juicy stuff with Shenji. With <laughs> <laughs> cut. You could get into a lot of really fun, juicy stuff with her. <laughs>